0: So we have been uh, going through the Sermon of the Mount, now this will be our our Sermon of the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, now for uh, three weeks. And uh, it is something as we unpack and talk about, I hope as we unpack these really rich lines full of truth, um, that we start to understand God a little bit more. A little bit better, we understand his heart, his character. We get to know and understand God's agenda. And as this happens, what hopefully will take place in your heart is that there will be a stirring of faith that takes place as we look to how we should pray. Um, maybe for the very first time there might be faith that comes into your heart. Maybe you don't know Christ, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you find yourself here this morning or or during the series. As we talk about the magnitude of who God is, it would not be uh, by mistake that you suddenly have a faith in your heart that you get to see Christ clearly for the first time. And we're praying for that, we're hoping for that, that you would come to know Jesus in that way. But Also, for those of us who are Christian, what you'll find is that there will be a stirring of faith in your heart. As you take your eyes off this world and its problems, our problems, and our own agenda, and we fix it on this glorious God, what happens is faith is stirred in our hearts. But having said that, we don't want this series to be a series about just a bunch of knowledge, As we have seen, we can do one sermon at a time by one little line. There's a lot of information that comes our way. But we don't want to just pack our heads with information when God teaches us how to pray. But rather what we want is to apply this to our lives. We want to be hearers of God's word, but we also want to be doers of it. And I I want to encourage you as we go through this uh, Lord's Prayer that you would start to pray in your life that you would start to apply this in your own personal life. Man, if you've never prayed before, wow, you've got, you've got a line-by-line line on what you can pray. You've got a clear, perfect prayer that you are able to pray by praying this prayer. And so our hope is by, we're gonna have done nine weeks of prayer when we done, including the two weeks before the Sermon of the Mount, that by the end of the nine weeks that we will be better at praying than we were at the beginning. Not perfect, man, of course not, But hopefully that we will have improved in our prayer life. There would be a new intimacy with the Father and with Christ as we pray this prayer. And so I just want to encourage you there. I want to challenge you. If you haven't been doing so, start this week. And you've already got, by the end of today, you'll have three lines and rich that you can just spend minutes and moments just proclaiming these wonderful truths. But just let us not be a a church who just likes the idea of prayer. Let's be a church that's on our knees contending and praying for the living God. So here we are. We are in the Sermon of the Mount, I mean the Lord's Prayer, and we have, if I say that again, you can shout out, all right. Um, We are in week three, and in the first week we stopped. I just want to give us a recap for those of us who might be new or have missed uh, we started off with our Father in heaven. Now, this is a, a greeting to the Lord, sure, but it is more than that. It's a it's a proclamation of who he is. It's a moment of praise, and it's also a moment to recall and to remind ourselves of who this God is. And so there's two elements, particularly that Jesus wants us to focus on when coming to the Lord in prayer. He wants us to focus on the Father aspect, our Father, and he also want to focus on the in heaven aspects. We get there now. But the, and our Father aspect, talks about the intimacy that we have with the Father. That He is our Father. We can know Him and have an intimate relationship with Him. He has a love that is steadfast, that is enduring, that is full. He has a perfect love for you as a believer. He doesn't love somebody more, more or love you less. He loves you with the fullness of love. He is a God who will protect you. He is a a Father who will provide for you. He is a Father that will guide you and lead you through the difficulties and the hardships of life. He is always present, always there, always available, always listening. And so as we talk about this Father aspects, we just come in knowing that He enjoys us being there. He's not upset that we've disturbed Him, but His arms are open as a loving Father wanting us to be in His presence. So Jesus calls us to remind ourselves and to praise him for that. But at the same time, he's in heaven. And that's not just a geographical location, but when we talk about him being in heaven, it's talking about his might, his power, his greatness, that he is a God who is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is mighty and powerful, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we are reminded that this is a great God who is mighty. We We do not rush into his presence like spoiled brats demanding that we get what we want now and how we want it. Because he is great and mighty. And he does not have to do what we ask. He is not manipulated by us in any way. But he does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants now. When we apply these two truths together, what happens is that we can come to him and request from him. And out of love for us, out of who we are in Christ, he will stop and listen. And out of his wisdom and out of his goodness and his fullness of love to you and me, he will answer the way he thinks is right. I have an 18-month-old son. And uh, he, he's turned 80 months yesterday, but he comes and asks me to do things or for things often. And sometimes it can be something like some milk, which is great, so I give it to him. Other times it can be the pair of scissors that I'm holding in my hand, and I say no. And so as we come to the Father and we request things from him, while we deem it as right? While we might think, Lord, I've thought this through and this is how life should go and this is what I need and, and I've, I've given it much thought, and yet he, when he says no, we know it's out of his great love for us and his greater wisdom, fullness of wisdom, that he will answer and give to us what is good. Oh, Amen. So as we come into the presence of this prayer, we come with a sense of intimacy and awe. It's this perfect balance. And what this leads to is to the first petition. Hallowed be your name. It leads to praise. As we focused on who this God is and we praise him, the deep desire that is stirred in our hearts is that others would know this great God just like we do. And we will say, Lord, hallowed be your name. What does it mean? Hallowed in this text means to be treated or to be considered as holy. We want the rest of the world to treat and consider God as holy, to know him for who he is. And that's what we mean by name, because name isn't just a bunch of letters, it's who it represents. It's not just the J-E-S-U-S or the G-O-D, because there's some guy in Brazil called Jesus, um, and so it's not just the letters itself, it's who the name represents. And so what we did last week is we looked at uh, some of those names. One of those names were Elohim, which meant power and strength. And so the, when God revealed himself to the people of Israel, and as we see that in Scripture, it reminds us that regardless of the difficulty of the life and the things that are coming away, the enemies that might rise up against us, man, we' go to God, He's more powerful. We've got a God who's most strong. And so the names of God through Scripture reveal His character, reveal His personal, and reveal who He is. And some of these names that we looked at were Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Other ones were the Lord heals, the Lord our peace, the Lord our shepherd, the Lord our righteous, the Lord our present. We want them to not just grasp God in a general sense, but to know Him in these very aspects. And in order for the world to know God in his very aspects, they need to know Jesus. It is not possible for them to know the God who heals if they have not met the one who has healed them from their sin. It is impossible for them to know the God provides if they have not met the one that God provided for them to take away their sin. It is not possible for them to know that the Lord is their shepherd if they have not met the good shepherd. It is not possible for them to know that God is their righteousness if they have not met the one who has washed away our sin and given us his righteousness. They need to know Jesus so that they might honor God and glorify him for all that he is. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, We are not asking that God would just do it by himself, but we are making a commitment ourselves that we would do that in our very own lives, in our own influences, with our own people and sphere of life. We are asking and committing that we will be a part of making the name of God hallowed. Now when we pray, uh, hallowed be your name, this now flows into our second petition which is your kingdom come, um, but really actually it influences not only the next petition but it influences all the petitions that come after it as well, and so hallowed be your name, Lord, we want you to be glorified, and the world to honor you, what flows in the immediate well, it, for that to happen, Lord, we need your kingdom to come we 'll unpack that this morning your your will will be done we will that will also be unpacked next week but even the petitions uh, pertaining to us that are about us and uh, give us our daily bread aspect of that is that lord we need we need sustenance so that we might be able to glorify your name even if the forgive us of our sins is saying lord would, would you forgive us of our sins so we're not burdened with sin and guilt so that we might be able to share your gospel Lord, would you save us from temptation and not let us fall into temptation and sin because, man, we don't want to be hindered by our own sinfulness. We want to save and help others come to know theirs and come to know you. And so this is a lens that kind of influences all the petitions and requests going off. Now, there are more aspects to it, but it is certainly an aspect that we need to keep in mind for the remaining of these petitions. So let's look at our second petition. Um, your or second request, your kingdom come. Now we gotta ask ourselves the question, what do we mean by kingdom? Well, firstly, what do we see there? It's not just some random kingdom, it's not some kingdom in the world, but rather we who are we talking to? God, your kingdom. So this is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Scripture talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it's referring to a kingly rule, a dynamic reign. We're talking about God's reign, God's rule. We're not talking about a people or a church. The church is not the kingdom. The church is a part of the kingdom. The church lives in the kingdom. The church is governed by the kingdom. But the kingdom itself is not the church. It is God's reign and God's rule. We see this explained to us in Psalm 103 verse 13 that says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So it gives us the meaning of kingdom. It rules. The Lord will govern over all all things. So just to clarify, when we pray, your kingdom come, we are not asking that the church will rule this world. We're not asking that the church would rule this country. And, and thank goodness that's not the case. Because, man, as I look around this room, actually, no, as, as we consider ourselves, we know that even those of us who are in Christ, we still struggle with sin. We're still battling with our own desires. We, we still struggle to live out all that God has called us to, to live under the rule of God ourselves. We, we still wrestle that. Uh, maybe I'm just speaking about myself this morning, but I'm, I, sanctification is sometimes a very slow process. And we as the church, as we wrestle with sin, we are prone to when we are put into power and in positions to become prideful, to become greedy, and become selfish. But man, when we pray this, we aren't asking that the church would rule, we're asking that Jesus would rule. We're asking that the all-powerful, all-knowing God, who is capable of everything, He rules far greater than asking that we would rule as the church. But having said that, when Christ rules, when the kingdom rules, the church will grow. The church grows and it blossoms and it gets bigger. We see that because part of the purpose that God has for the world is that he would save for himself a people. That he would redeem the world for that people. His kingly rule includes an activity of saving and redeeming himself a people. That's why we call part of this kingdom being the good news. It's good because people are saved and we have a God who will rule. So that's what it means by the kingdom. But why doesn't the rest of the world get this? Why doesn't the rest of the world uh, follow after God? Because, man, we, we are under his rule. Most of us in this room will consider Christians. We, we have seen the, the joy and the peace and the comfort that comes with knowing this God. We, we enjoy him. We appreciate him, we, we love it, there's joy in here and a satisfaction which far outweighs the worldly pleasures that we used to enjoy, but yet it is only in comparison to the rest of the world a minority, and the majority seem to turn away, even though their pleasures failed compared to the pleasures that we have. But why? Why? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's because of sin that's in their lives that they have this struggle with this. Um, and to put it another way, we see in Scripture it says that they are part of the kingdom of darkness. We see this in Colossians 1 verse 13. Scripture has a theology that teaches us that there is an opposition, that there is evil, and that there is another ruler of this world. It, it says so in, in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14. It says, in their case, talking about the world that are outside of Christ, in their case, the God of this world has blinded, and that's a small g, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, capital G. And so we have an opposition that has blinded this world from seeing the gospel, from seeing Christ clearly. And so those people aren't in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They aren't under his rule, but they're under the rule of the kingdom of darkness, of the God of this world. But fortunately for us, Scripture is quite clear from all the way back in Genesis 3. We see that God makes a promise to us that He is going to come again. And what He's going to do is He's going to take back, reestablish His kingdom and take back the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of darkness for Himself. We see that and these prophecies and promises are made in Scripture. And we see it run through all of the Old Testament's. From Moses, uh, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, to the prophets, they all point to the time when the kingdom of heaven will be established and God will defeat this kingdom of darkness. And what we find is when we arrive in the Gospels, when we arrive in the New Testament era, we meet a strange character named John the Baptist. dressed in leather and his skins and eating honey and locusts, really odd guy. But he has this message that he's proclaiming. He proclaims this message and his message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's saying, you know what all the prophets have been speaking to, all of what we have learned up to this point, pointing to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God coming. It's about to be here. It's about to arrive. Be ready for it so you ought to repent. And he, he goes on, the verse continues on to explain a little bit more of this, who this John the Baptist is and who is going to usher in this kingdom. He says, For this is he who has spoken of by the uh, prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The Lord was coming to establish his heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God. He was going to come and do that. Who arrives immediately afterwards in this text? Jesus. Jesus has arrived to usher in the kingdom of God. He has come to bring in the kingdom of God. So what is he needing to do? He needs to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. How is he going to do that? Because why are we in the kingdom of darkness? Because of our sin. Romans 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. And so, the reason why we can't get ourselves into the, the kingdom is because the punishment is too great of, for us to be able to pay. It's death. So, we need somebody else to come and pay the price to liberate us from the slavery of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, and transfer us into the kingdom of God. So, what does Jesus do? He comes and lives the life that we could not. It was perfect, it was great. And he would go and he would live this perfect life and he would die for us on the cross, sinless, not deserved of the death and the penalty of death. But he would take our sin upon himself and the wrath of God would be poured out on him because of our sin. And in that moment, Jesus would die and he would defeat sin and he would rise again three days later proving that his sacrifice was sufficient for us and he would defeat death so that as John 3, 16 says that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, that we are moved and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, uh, the kingdom of heaven. We are moved into that by the blood of Jesus Christ and whoever repents and believes in him. We see this quite clearly explained in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He says this, he, The Father has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. The only way we are able to be in the kingdom of God is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Amen. But what I love about this text is I want us to see in the Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14, who is the king of this kingdom? We see here it says, He who has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So this kingdom that we are now a part of is not ruled by democratic election of government. It is ruled by the King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. He oversees this kingdom. He rules it. And man, that is wonderful. But what we see in this text, it goes and explains who this Jesus is. Now, now we don't necessarily notice it in our text because what you see is in Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. It says there, and then we have inserted, which is not in the original text, a heading to help us know where we're at but it breaks in a heading and then it goes into verse 15 to 20 and explains who this king is. Explains who the ruler of this kingdom is, who this beloved son is. And so I want us just to n- just stop for a moment and just read who this Jesus, the king of this kingdom is. And we see it in here. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we see here his sovereignty. There is nothing that is taking place that is out the sovereignty of this God. He rules. He is the king. And he is the head of the church, uh, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the wonderful king of the kingdom that we belong to for those who are in Christ. He rules with power and might, but he's the same God that would give his life for you. What a wonderful, wonderful aspect to have that we have this king who is mighty in power but also full of love that he would give his life for us. So this is the kingdom. But we've got to then ask the question, what do we mean by your kingdom come? What do we mean by when is this kingdom going to come? What do we mean by come? And there are two major elements to this. The first is a now aspect, and the second is a future aspect. And so when we pray, Your kingdom come, we're asking that the kingdom of, of, of God will come now. Um, and we all have eyes here this morning. We all can see that the kingdom of God is not here in its fullness. It's here, but not yet fully here, right? We can see the, the pain and the suffering of this world. We can see that there are men and women who don't necessarily follow after God. That he hasn't, he's not ruling in everyone's hearts. And so when we pray this prayer and we ask that your kingdom will come, we're asking that God would rule like he would in his fullness and when it is in place fully. We're asking that the Lord would, man, he would deal with the suffering of this world, that he would better this world just in his normal rule, that the evil of this world would have less power and less control. We'll, we'll talk about that more, though, in next week's request. But primarily, when we ask that the Lord would come, and his kingdom would come now, we're asking that his heart would be, uh, that he would rule in the hearts of everyone. Because that's where he primarily rules now, right? Is in your and my heart. Those who belong to Christ, he rules in our hearts, in our lives. And so when we ask, Lord, let your kingdom come, we are primarily saying, Lord, would all people's hearts be given to you? Would you rule over their hearts, over their lives? May they give it to you. May they be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. That's what we are asking. And so there's this now element to it. But may I say that when we pray this, we do not pray this with a fear that it might not happen. We do not pray this thinking that there's this battle going on in the heavenlies between God and Satan, and we're not sure who's gonna win. This is this is a victory that is won. We sang it this morning. You are victorious. You have won the day when Jesus died and rose again from the dead. The war was over. Oh man, there might be a few little battles to be fought, but the the outcome is going to happen. Jesus will win. We have a king who is victorious. Church, if you are on the side of Christ, you are on the winning side. Not because you are mighty, but because we have a king who is glorious and mighty. And so when we pray this, Lord, would your kingdom come, we pray with the confidence knowing that he will achieve what he has purposed to achieve. His kingdom will go forth and it will achieve all that it has planned for it. And we see this in, in Matthew 6, verses 17 and 19. Jesus asks Peter, he says to him, Peter, who, do, who does everyone say I am? And and. And Jesus, uh, Peter says to him, oh, man, some people think you Elijah. Some people say you John the Baptist. Some say you say you're the prophet. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the, son, no, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And what we see is this response from Jesus. He says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That is his other name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed what? That Jesus is the, the Messiah, the, the one who's going to usher in this kingdom, the one that Scripture's been talking about. He is the Son of the living God. And he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. On what rock? Primarily on the revelation of the gospel this revelation that Peter has given by the Father, this revelation that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that He is the one to usher in the kingdom, this is the, primarily what God is going to build His church upon, is this truth. And when that happens, what do we see? We see the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will not prevail against it. Now, I want you to notice that's not the defense. That's not standing back and trying to fight the the evils of this world with our our swords and and trying to stop it from getting to us as a church. We are not in a defense position as a church. That is not our natural mode. But rather, our natural mode is offense. Why? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not that hell won't overcome us. No, no, no. We will overcome the gates of hell there is a strength to it because we have a king of kings, the Lord of lords who's already victorious. We are confident in our gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, not because of who we are, but because of the one who rules over us, our king. So just like hallowed be your name is not just a statement we make and a request we ask God to do by himself. It is a commitment that we make. So in saying hallowed be your name, we are committing to be a part of extending the kingdom of God. While the church is not the kingdom, it is certainly a vessel that God uses to extend his kingdom. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit, God himself, so that we might advance this gospel for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so when we pray this together as believers and we say, Lord, your kingdom come, we are making a commitment that we will go and see this kingdom expanded through our very efforts by the power of the Spirit. And we will do our best to be a part, a vessel used by God, by his Holy Spirit, to make sure that this kingdom is expanded. And this is the the vision of our church. That we will see the city of East London filled with the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ. Man, that can be that can be intimidating. Lord, really? That's big. But in actual fact, man, our confidence is not in whether we have enough capability in this room. Our confidence is in God and in what he has called us to. And so we go confidently knowing, Lord, we're going to go where you send us. We're going to do what you ask us to do because in that, man, we will be successful. Or should I say, the gospel will be successful. God will achieve what he wants through that plan, whether it's for a season or forever. Whatever it might be, we can be assured that this vision is capable because of the gospel and the power of the king who oversees it. So we, we have a now element as we pray, but there's also a future element to this. When we pray your kingdom come, there's this longing in our hearts that one day God will consummate his kingdom in fullness that he would bring it with power, that he would come. And, and that's the truth. We, we sang about it this morning. Man, the, the first time he came, what did he come as? The lamb who was to be sacrificed for us. But he's not coming back the next time as the lamb. He's coming as the king of kings and the lord of lords. He, he came as the, as the first time as a servant for us, but he's not coming as a servant. He's coming as the judge and the king of kings. And when he comes, he's going to cast out evil, he's going to cast out wickedness, he's going to cast out sin, and he's going to cast out all the horrors of life. And he's going to bring in the fullness of his kingdom, just like he intended it to. And he will rule over us in love and in power. And so as we pray this man, there's this longing thing, saying, Lord, would you come now, For this world is hard. This is difficult and hard to live in. But Lord, we, we, we desire that you would come now. Usher in the kingdom now, Lord, this desire in us. And, and we, we see how beautiful this picture of what it will be like in heaven in, in one of my favorite verses in Revelations 20, uh, Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. It says, this, And I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will do well with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as they God. Now, I'm going to stop there, there's more. But that is the primary goal. That is, there's some great stuff coming off this, but I want to tell you that all the great stuff that I'm about to read now is, is, not, is, a, is not the main thing, but a byproduct of being in the full presence of this king. Of being in the full presence of Jesus, this is what's going to happen when he comes again. Let's carry on reading. And he, you see the action here, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Every hardship in life will be gone. Every mourning, of a loved one who has passed away. We will never have to experience it again. In fact, we might even be reignited with some of our loved ones. Oh man, there's no going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more hurt. There's going to be no more shame. There's going to be no more guilt. No more anxiety. Oh man, I cannot wait. I don't think we even know what peace is like. A full peace It's going to be glorious. It's going to be joyful. It's going to be wonderful. It's gonna man, I'm only I was I was telling the eight, I, I am only twenty eight years old, I'm twenty-nine next month. But man, my body is aching. I know all the old people are laughing. Wait until you're seventy, bud. I'm no longer a spring chicken like I used to be. <laughs> Whatever, Pierre. <laughs> and we're gonna get glorious bodies. Oh man, with no sickness full Again, in a perfect world to do the wonders and wonderful things that God has planned for us in this new heaven and new earth. That's going to be amazing. And man, so we pray, Lord, would you bring that soon? Would that come? Oh, this life is difficult and tough, but the, oh, this is something great. And, and, and far exceeds everything in this world. And so when we pray this, we don't say, oh, Lord, would you come? But let me first graduate. Oh, Lord, when, you, when this comes, let me first experience what it's like to be married or to have kids or to grandkids or to travel or to retire. Let me first, no, no, because this far exceeds any earthly experience that you can possibly have. And so we desire this, not saying, oh, Lord, would you hold out a bit for our selfishness? Man, we can may say like Paul, to live is uh, Christ and to die is gain, to say, oh, Lord, man, would you come now? But if you don't, may you save many more. We want this kingdom to come now, but we also want it to be consummated fully now. And when we do this, when we fix our eyes off this current troubled times and we look to this future hope that we have in Christ, that He will one day come again, or we will before then maybe go be with Him. What this hap what happens in us, it stirs a hope in our hearts. It stirs a hope. Suffering and hardship and difficulty, the anxieties of this world, losing of loved ones, the mourning, the tears, you name it, you got the news. Those things can really hinder us and make us struggle to live out this Christian walk. And we can be tired and overwhelmed and exhausted and say, man, I just need to stop. It's hard to be the people that we are committing ourselves to be in this prayer. But when we take our eyes off this current situation and we fix it on this future hope, it stirs a hope in our hearts. We realize the suffering that we experience of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us, Romans 8 verse 18. It says so differently in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 16 and 18. It says, so we do not lose hearts, that the outer self is wasting away. I'm just talking about me here. and our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. This is, so. can we just stop for a moment? This is poor writing. He's been beaten. He's been stoned to a point that they thought he, thought he was dead and just dragged him out of city and left him there because that's how badly stoned he was. He's been um, shipwrecked. He's been whipped 40 plus forty plus one three times. He's been imprisoned multiple times for the gospel. And yet, somehow, in all this affliction, Paul is to say, it's a light momentary affliction. is preparing for us eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Oh, man, what I am going through. Suffers and the sufferings and the hardships do not compare to what awaits for me in Christ. And it goes on to say, and so we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are uh, unseen are eternal. It stirs us on and helps us to go. So what are we praying when we pray, your kingdom come? We're saying, Lord, would you reign? Oh, would you reign in kingly rule in this world and in the hearts of men? But Lord, would you reign in my own heart as well? Because we cannot pray this prayer that God would reign in others' hearts without asking Him to reign in our own. Would you rule over me? Lord, would, would your gospel go forth in power and change this world and change the hearts of men? And Lord, would you use us? But Lord, while and we wait for you to come, we ask for that. But Lord, we long that you'd come back quickly. Bring in your kingdom in fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. And so that's where we pray. Let us pray. Would you bow your heads? While you're doing that, would you just take a moment, just thank God and, and ask him to rule in your life? I'm just aware that we, we sometimes focus on other people, not ourselves, and maybe you ask, and maybe you don't know Christ, and you want to, just ask him to be the king of your life, to forgive you of your sin. He will do that. If you know Christ, ask Him to rule in your life. That He would use you for the extension of His kingdom. That you would be a vessel for His use and for His glory.